For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Jonathan Ray. Johnny will be well known to regular Spectator readers as our drinks editor. He's also a regular drinks columnist for The Field, Boat International and Spears magazine. And prior to this, he was drinks editor of GQ, having previously spent many years as wine editor of the Daily Telegraph. He was also the anonymous bar spy for Imbibe magazine. And he's the author of several books on wine, including Bloodlines and Grapevines, All About Wine and How to Buy Wine. Johnny, welcome to Table Talk. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Johnny, listeners will know that we always start this podcast in the same place, but I think today we need to start it slightly differently because you very kindly sent both Liv and myself a lovely bottle of wine to drink during this podcast. So I think perhaps you should start by telling listeners, first of all, what we're drinking. Yeah, of course. I just think all chats are lovely, but chats fueled or eased by wine are even lovelier. And I just thought it'd be fun for us each to have a glass. We each have a bottle. We don't have to drink the whole thing. Um, but... <laughs> Might. <laughs> Some... Chateau Tayet, T-A-Y-E-T. It's a Bordeaux Superior 2018. It's supplied by one of our partners in the Spectator Wine Club, Private Cellar. I think it's cracking good value. It's barely over 15 quid a bottle. Really soft, beautifully made, largely Merlot, a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon, a bit of putty Verdot, juicy, jammy, brambly, and uh, specky readers will know it we've we've offered it many times in the past with our offers and famously last year and the year before we enjoyed it on our notorious clays claret and cognac cruise uh, down the river thames which as you both know we, every year we in september we take a thames sailing barge down the river thames we board it 40 readers and a few from the specky board it at the o2 we go down river through the thames barrier more up at thames mead um, the skipper calls Wapping Police Station and asks permission to fire. And we shoot at clays with a over and under, a side-by-side, pump-action shotgun, blunderbuss, elephant gun and a musketoon. And last year, Martin Vanderweer, our, our esteemed business editor, joined us and nearly got blown over the other side by the recoil of the uh, <laughs> blunderbuss. Anyway, we all do, we do this completely sober. We do that for about an hour and a half. And then we sail back up river. And that's when we enjoy some really nice wine. We had some Hambledon English sparkling wine last time and some white Burgundy. And then we had this beautiful Bordeaux Superior in bottle and in Magnum. And we enjoyed it over a three-course lunch as we sailed back up river. And we Tower Bridge opened especially for us as we drank cognac from a double Magnum, I believe, in, in the importance of sizes when it comes to bottles. And we screwed up London's traffic on a Friday afternoon and great fun was had by all. <laughs> it sounds really fun. And the wine is delicious. So thank you, oh, it's a pleasure. Cheers. Then going back to where we do normally start this podcast, what is your earliest memory of food? Food. My mother was the cookery correspondent of The Observer many, many, many years ago. And we always ate 
pretty well at home, very simple. We were a small family, me, my dad and my mum. My father couldn't cook. Well, he could cook lentils and sausages in a slow cooker. It's the only thing he could cook. But he was born, he'd be 115 if he was alive today. So born in 1908, you know, he came from a generation when blokes really couldn't cook. But my mum was a, a really good cook and loved cooking for us. And my father was very appreciative of food, though he could be quite annoying. I remember... Gosh, he was in his 70s when he decided to come out as a vegetarian, which wound my mother up somewhat. And he declared he wasn't going to eat any meat products or anything to do with meat. So my mum had to you know, find various veggie dishes. And you know, this was in the 70s. And then after a week of this, he, he declared that he was allowed to eat oysters. And then two days after that, he, he said, actually, he had a special dispensation. He was allowed to eat oxtail. And this drove my mum into a complete despair. So she put an end to his shenanigans by the next day making stuffed turnip, sorry, turnip stuffed with semolina. And he sort of ran up the white flag and went back to being a carnival. (laughs) And what about wine? Was wine a presence in your family home growing up? Was it something you tried young? When, When did that become part of your life? Quite young. My father wrote about wine. I mean, in his 50s, he started writing about wine. He'd been a war correspondent, what he called a proper journalist with the Guardian, the Sunday Times, and indeed the Spectator. But in his 50s, he started to write about wine. And But he'd always loved wine. And I remember we moved back to London when I was 16. So that was 1976. And he had a lovely flat in central London. And we moved back there, my mother, my father and I. And the first thing he did was to put a fridge in every room except the bathroom. I don't think there was a fridge in the bathroom, but every room had a fridge because he didn't like to be too far from alcoholic refreshment. And these were small fridges, but there was a fridge in his office or study, a fridge in the bedroom, fridge in the sitting room, a fridge in the dining room. And these were filled with bottles of sparkling wine. When he was in funds, it was Bollinger Champagne. When he was slightly strapped for cash, it was Longois Chateau, which is a lovely sparkling wine from the Loire Valley, curious enough, owned by Bollinger, and lots of Guinness, And so there was alcohol in every possible room except the bathroom. And I think I must have been 10 or 11 when my father started serving me watered down rosé. Because my mum didn't really approve, but he thought I should be started out young. And then there was one day when I think he just forgot to water it down. I was probably 12. And so from the age of 12, I guess, I was drinking gentle wine, rosés. Or he loved at that stage some quite simple Italian wines, Bardolino, Valpolicella and so on. And so, Liv, yeah, alcohol was a, was an ever-present from an early age. <laughs> and what about school food, Johnny? What are your memories of school food and drink? Did you, I mean, were you also having a drink at school? At prep school, we had an incredibly good food, funny enough. I was packed off to boarding school at seven and in, in Sussex, and we had a, kitchen, a walled kitchen garden. And so we had really good food. And our headmaster and headmistress, they also had a house in France, and they were very Francophile and believed in the importance of good food and, curious enough, alcohol. And Hal, our headmaster, was such a kind man, absolutely adored by all of us. When we were in our last year, so 13, he would occasionally give us little glasses of red wine. And then on to the next school, food was pretty good. And But listen, I, I just love food. And it, it sounds awful. I, I even like airline food. I mean, really good airline food. I'll eat anything. Though I love really good food. I cook a lot. And but, you know, I think there's joy to be had in so much food. And when did that cooking start? When were you first sort of fending for yourself or even cooking for others? At school, we had to 
I wouldn't say cook tea, but we had to assemble tea, and it was a meal we had to cook ourselves. And so we'd be doing sort of simple spaghetti, spag bol, or I don't know, beans on dough, scrambled eggs. But my mother taught me at a very young age to do the, the real basics. I remember, I think the first thing, well, scrambled eggs was probably the first thing I learned to cook. And Liv, I've, I've enjoyed your very recently, I think your next one is Scotch woodcock. So I made some. Yes. <laughs> and I paired that, oh, I hope you approve, with some really nice champagne. It was interesting reading about savouries, Scotch woodcock scrambled eggs with anchovies on top on taste. Hmm. And I read something saying that savouries were originally brought in to give more possibilities of wine pairing. And then I read someone else saying, well, that's nonsense because none of the stuff they serve at savouries are easy to pair with wine. So I was so interested to see what you'd end up putting it alongside. So now I definitely approve of that. Well, I think both scrambled egg and anchovies are tricky to match with wine. But actually, as a put in the little piece with your lovely recipe. I think it's, I see it as a really late night dish when you've come in from mm. a, a night on the town. And I think when it was first created or in its heyday, say maybe in the 30s or something, people would have, they'd have been out on the town, they'd been to the Café de Paris, they'd gone dancing and they'd come home and they'd want a nice little savoury. And what do you want to drink then? You don't want a red wine or a white wine, but a lovely champagne, I think it's perfect. Something a bit zippy. Yeah, I think so. And refreshing and slightly decadent. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so I think it's a good match. But uh, anyway, scrambled eggs was one of the first things I learned to cook. And then my, we lived in Kent um, in my childhood, and one of the dishes was a, a leg of Romney Marsh lamb, roast leg of lamb. And she said, this is so easy to do. The girls will be so impressed if you can cook. You'll steal a march on everybody else. And it's simple. Leg of lamb, you pour, a, I think, a pint of cider around it, pour honey and powdered ginger on top, bit of rosemary, chuck it in the oven. It's perfect. It comes out slightly sweet and sour and with a sort of reduction of cider to pour around it. I mean, what could be simpler or more delicious? <laughs> Does sound really good. And Johnny, you grew up in a household where your father, Cyril, was a wine writer. Your mother was editing cookbooks. Who were the food and drink writers that sort of first got you really interested in it? And also, who do you still turn to now? Well, Olivia Potts, obviously. <laughs> Obviously. First, first port of call for anything, I imagine. <laughs> Obviously. Um, but before Livy Potts was even... <laughs> <laughs> Can we remember a time? I think it was a bleak, sad, miserable time. B.O.D. before Olivia Potts. Um, <laughs> exactly. Well, in fact, Liv and I have talked about this. I was given when I was actually quite young, I'm certainly in my teens, Cooking in 10 Minutes by Edouard de Pommian, which remains my favourite cookery book. And I think anyone who has... Even a half an interest in cooking should read that book. It's so beautifully written. It is. Very gentle. And the recipes are very easy. It's terribly old-fashioned, but it's a beautiful read. So I have always have a copy of that with me. My parents, of course, adore Elizabeth David. Catherine Whitehorn, who was a friend of my father and a colleague of my father on The Spectator, she did, I think, was it Cooking in a bed- Bedsit? Yeah. That was the first one in our book club, Lara, wasn't it, when we did a, a yeah, we, book we club have, Liz and I, oh, okay. We have this book club where we choose a book and that was our first one. And there were some amazing, I mean, some quite weird recipes, but some more, also actually really quite delicious recipes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a, a seminal book, I think. I love Raymond Blanc. Again, I think he has a warmth about him. And Olivia, I'm not flattering you but I think it's true of you in, in your writing and certainly the lunch you hosted with it I think there are some chefs who are technically brilliant but they sort of leave one cold and there are other chefs and cooks who just draw you in with their joy of food and their love of food and I think you're like that Liv I think Raymond Blanc is certainly like that I think it's simply Raymond 
where he just pays tribute to his mother and his grandmother. And it's, mm. you can just, in his prose, rather like Edouard de Pommian, you can smell the pots bubbling away on the stove. You can hear the corks being uncorked. You can just hear the clatter of cutlery as the family come in. And it's just, oh, I don't know, there's such love in his recipes. And they're so simple and so engaging. And yeah, I think Roma Blanc's one of my favourites. Which came first for you in terms of your writing? Did you get into writing through wine or into wine through writing? In my year off, I, my father said I had to get a job because he wasn't going to pay anything towards my upkeep. So I remember walking through Covent Garden and Odbins had a store there in Earlham Street and there was a sign up saying staff wanted and I just walked in and I was 18. And so I spent most of my year off working in Odbins and got a taste or more of a taste for wine there. And I worked in Obbins in my vacations. And then when I left university, I got a job at Berry Brothers. And I stayed there for quite a while. And then I got slightly bored. It was a lovely company. And I made some really close friends. I met my wife there. I met the godparents of my children there. And we're all very close friends. And it was a lovely firm. But I, I think I'd slightly outgrown it in a way and was enjoying writing and had an idea for a book. And I, I was at the, the book launch of a friend of mine and met a lovely girl there who we went boozing all the way down Upper Street, I remember. And she called me the next day and said, Johnny, I've got the most appalling hangover and a really nasty feeling I promised to publish your book. <laughs> I'd forgotten that I'd bent her ear over our seventh bottle of wine or something. And I had an idea for, I said, why aren't there books that just tell you the basics? Something like everything you need to know about wine. And it was lovely, but late, but very lovely, Rebecca Spry and uh, Mitchell Beasley. And she published the book and then I did a couple of other books for Ryan and Peters and Small and then the Telegraph asked me to be their drinks editor and I just found I was a journalist without any training I mean I'm 63 next week and I still have no idea what I'm going to do with my life but I'm a lush who's paid to drink so I'm quite happy (laughs) (laughs) seems a good job and Johnny what's your what's your advice to people who you must get this asked this a lot who don't know that much about wine and are kind of interested to to discover it but don't really know where to start. Is it by buying your book or are there kind of, was it getting a job in the wine industry? What's what's the way in, do you think? This sound, will sound flippant, but I don't mean it to be, but you've got to drink more. <laughs> there are books and I'd love it if people bought my books, but you know, there's some other fantastic books. Andrew Jeffords has a lovely book of um, a, a wine tasting course. Michael Broadbent did a fantastic book. You can learn so much in a book about which regions make wine, what the blends are and so on, but... Really, the only way to learn about wine is to taste and drink. I had a, I was in the Netherlands a couple of days ago, and I'm always discovering new things. And I went to a restaurant, Harpoon, which is a very new restaurant in The Hague. Absolutely wonderful. And the guy there knew I was interested in wine and showed me the wine list. And he said, have you ever had Dutch wine? And I said, no, I haven't had Dutch wine. And I had a delicious Oxerwa wine from Zealand. It's from an island in the southwest of Holland, the Netherlands. And my goodness, I, I, you know, I'm, as I say, I'm 63 shortly and I never thought I'd drink Dutch wine, but it was an absolute delight. And I could read in a book that they make wine in Zealand, but unless you actually open the damn thing and drink it, you're not going to know what it tastes like, whether you like it, whether it's something similar to, whether it's similar to something you've had before, what, it, what food it goes with. So really, it, I don't mean to sound flippant, I sort of do, but you've got to drink more or at least taste wine, otherwise you'll never learn anything. Since you started drinking and writing about wine, how has the wine world changed? Gosh, it's changed a lot in that, well, firstly, the UK is the centre of the world's wine trade. 
you can get wines here you just do not see anywhere else and it always astounds friends of mine from California or France or wherever who go into a supermarket in the UK and they go, my God, there's so much variety here. It's, I mean, if you go to Bordeaux and ask for a bottle of Alsace, they look at you as if you're crazy. They say, what? Whereas here you get wine from oh, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, uh, Peru. I've had wines from Peru. There are wines from, I've seen fantastic sparkling wine from Luxembourg, which, I mean, of course Luxembourg makes wine, but Perhaps they wouldn't expect to see it sold here. So there's wine from every possible country. But when I started in the wine trade in 79 in Obbins, we had we only stocked two Australian wines. We had Wallaby White and Kangarooge, and they were the only Australian wines. Whereas now we drink more Australian wine in the UK than we do the wine from any other country. Really? We've got wine from South Africa, you know, New Zealand, Morocco. Their wines... I think that's the thing. Wine has just grown so much and it's not all about Bordeaux and Burgundy. And there's organic wine, there's biodynamic wine, there's this ghastly thing, natural wine. I mean, it has changed a lot and it's always changing. And as I say, I I couldn't imagine drinking Dutch wine a few years ago. And that's what's so exciting about wine. It, It never stands still. And there's so much out there to enjoy. English wine, I'm a huge fan of English wine. And we've got an English wine lunch coming up on the on St George's Day, and yeah, we make fantastic sparkling wine in this country, and still wine, but particularly sparkling wine. But who'd have thought that a few years ago? I was at um, Chapel Down giving a talk to Chapel Down um, in September, and Chapel Down in Kent, it's probably the biggest producer of English wine, and I joined some people at one of the tables, and they were complimenting Chapel, Chapel Down on their Kitts Coty Cur de Cuvée sparkling wine, which was England's first £100 bottle of wine. And one of them said, yeah, it's delicious, but gosh, if you want a Blanc de Blanc, you you really should go to Gusbourne. And someone else said, yeah, their Blanc de Blanc's really good, but have you tried the Rosé from Herbert Hall? And someone else said, yeah, but what about the 2014 Blanc de Blanc from Hattingley Valley? And someone said, yeah, but have you tried that fantastic wine, um, Coates and Seeley, their Rosé? And I thought, I had to pinch myself. These are people talking about English wine, but they were so au fait with the fact that different producers are making different style wines. And we'd never have had that conversation a few years ago. Johnny, we're recording this at the tail end of Lent. And I know you sometimes do dry January. Mm. How hard do you find abstinence? And how often do you have a period of abstinence? Yes, dry. Well, I, I managed the whole 31 days of January this year. I think Lent, <laughs> giving up for Lent is even more hair-shirted, I think, and more virtual. <laughs> <laughs> I know a few people at Spectator are doing it right now, and they're, they're looking forward to <laughs> Easter Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, so I manage dry January, and I have to. I, I drink every day otherwise, and funny enough, I, get, I find January very easy because I just give up, and that's it, and my friends don't egg me on. But it's during the week when you turn the computer off, maybe at 7 o'clock, and you're either going out or say you're staying at home, you have a glass of wine as you turn your computer off, go downstairs, have a glass of wine whilst you're mulling over what to cook. You have a glass of wine with your main course. You have a glass of wine when you're clearing up. You have a glass of wine... When you're watching the 10 o'clock news, that's a bottle gone. And once I've started, I find it impossible to stop. But January, yes, I can give up in January, just to prove to my wife I'm not a complete old soak. And do you, I mean, as the Spectator Drinks editor, do you have a go-to hangover cure? Do you even get hangovers? Oh, I was just going to say, what do you do if you, what, how, how do you taste wine if you feel rotten? You just got to get back in the saddle, Liv. And- <laughs> <laughs> just mustn't lose your nerve that's the thing um yeah I do get hangovers but I, I feel 
I think if I didn't work from home, I would struggle to drink as much as I do. And I know I drink more than I should. It's, it's not big and it's not clever. Yeah, I mean, I think... That, it, is your, it is your job, Johnny. It is. <laughs> well, I try and say that to Marina, my wife, but she says, yeah, it's not your job to drink a bottle every night. And But yes, I sometimes feel a little shabby in the mornings, but yeah, one shouldn't be silly about it. One should drink lots of water. One shouldn't drink too much, but wine is good for one in moderation. Roger Corder, Professor Roger Corder, wrote a very good book called The Wine Diet, which for any of you listening who are slightly worried about your consumption, I strongly recommend you read it. There's enough there to encourage us not to give up completely, but I agree, I drink too much, but I do enjoy wine. But Johnny, do you have a go-to hangover cure? Is it a hair of the dog or do you have a kind of strange cure that you turn to? No, I don't have a particular hangover cure. Um, Bloody Mary does work. And again, being slightly flippant, you've got lots of vitamins in the tomato juice. And the way I make a Bloody Mary, I put in vodka, of course. It doesn't matter what quality the vodka is. The tomato juice has to be really good. That's the key. And I know other tomato juices are available, but the best I've found is from the tomato stall in the Isle of Wight. It's just pure, unadulterated tomato juice, no citric acid, no salt or anything. It's thick, gloopy and so delicious. So you make a Bloody Mary, vodka, I mean, really, that's just a a vehicle to get the alcohol into you. So I don't think the vodka has to be too good. Really good tomato juice, dash of sherry, some fresh orange juice. I think that's the key. Um, An orange and tomato goes really well. There's a recipe I do for chilled tomato soup with little segments of orange. So orange and tomato, a bit of lemon juice, celery salt. And so a Bloody Mary does work, I think. A Guinness, if you can handle it, it's not a bad hangover cure. Otherwise, just, I think a manzanilla sherry about 11 o'clock. That usually kickstarts the most jaded <laughs> jaded of appetites or spirits or a glass of fizz if you can stomach the acidity <laughs> and that leads us nicely on to my next question which is when you're not drinking wine do you have a go-to drink assuming you're not hungover at this point so a bloody mary is not mandatory what is your non-vino drink of choice a sparkling water can't think of anything else i don't like sweet drinks i don't like hot drinks particularly and yeah if i'm not drinking i just drink san pellegrino or badwa and uh, and just while away the time until I can have a nice glass of wine again. That's a very chic choice, I think. Uh, well, I don't know if it's chic. It's just I don't like still water particularly, but sparkling water, it just, I don't know, it's all I need. But I don't like sweet, fruity drinks. And I'm not crazy about these non-alcoholic spirits or no-alcohol wine. I'd rather just have water. And I drink a lot of water during the day anyway. But, um, yeah, just, I guess, fizzy water. Johnny, you also make your own gin. Tell us about that and... and- is the gin craze still going or is that sort of slightly dying down now? Um, well, I help set up Brighton Gin in my in my hometown and well, I'm not involved anymore. I'm still a shareholder, but I'm not a director anymore. But yeah, we had a lot of fun trialling that. We set it up about, gosh, about 10 years ago and it's going really well. We have our regular strength, the pavilion strength, and then the seaside strength, whereas everyone else is doing low or no alcohol spirits. We do, we decided to have a strong gin, uh, which is I think 57% bowl and that's done extremely well and I think that it's a crowded market but I think there are a lot of flavoured gins now people you know there's marmalade gin there's blueberry gin and so on and I think they may fall slightly by the wayside but I think well-made handmade gin like Brighton gin is will continue to survive but it is a crowded market but I think lots of people are now getting into rum rum seems to be the new spirit for people but uh yeah, I think gin will, will continue. There'll always be a taste for gin, particularly with all these lovely tonics and so on. And you're a keen cook. What is your favourite thing, or most common thing, to cook at home? Well, again, this sounds like I'm, 
you know, leading your fan club, but it was your chicken pie, Liv. <laughs> I make that. Liv, I made that the other night. It's so good. Oh, oh thank God. This is reviews. lovely. <laughs> <laughs> also, putting the chicken fat in was such a good. Yeah, yeah. It's. It, it, I mean, it's always the flavour, isn't it? Exactly, and you're so right because you put your chicken thighs with the skin on, you know, skin side down in a cold pan, let it come up, and then you just let it cook until it unsticks. Mm. And Laura, you're so right. It's that. It's like lovely chicken fat, and I sometimes put mushrooms in and diced ham as well. But oh, nice! That is a go-to, and I love and the, and the tarragon. As tarragon, well. yeah. So there's so much tarragon in it, and I just love it, and it really is my go-to recipe because I cook it and freeze it with the pastry already on. Yeah, you know, I just need to think ahead to defrost it, and but that is a dish you really cook with love I think it takes quite a long time but the end result yes it's not it's not one you do on a whim is it but it's um it's no, got good results exactly it's not on a whim but you know I always have one in the freezer for when people say oh you know can we come around to supper and I think great that's tomorrow night supper sorted and I just wait we, we open a nice bottle of one I just wait for a smile to steal across <laughs> their chops when they dig into it because it's comfort food incarnate but no that really is one of my standby Oh, thank you. Beef and Guinness that my mum taught me. My father's favourite drink was Guinness. And beef and Guinness, my mother called it Dublin steak, but it's just stewing steak or shin of beef, browned with some onions and some mushrooms, bay leaves, and then you pour in a can of Guinness and some brown sugar, salt, pepper, and just let it bubble away low and slow and serve it with mashed potatoes and stir-fried sprouts or stir-fried cabbage. I mean, that's a, everyone loves that. It's a really good dish. And... Johnny, do you have a sweet tooth? Not so much for pudding, but I love sweet wine. I think sweet wine is one of the great underrated treats. So tern or tokai, which I particularly love, which is the it's Hungary's gift to the world. Tokai is so good. Or the sweet wines of Alsace or Canadian ice wine. My God. You know, I think the Canadians owe us quite a lot for inflicting Celine Dion on us. And so I think they, they've repaid us in spades <laughs> with, um, with uh, Canadian oh, ice wine. And, and Justin Bieber. <laughs> so I think sweet wine is a real treat and shouldn't, I don't like to call it dessert wine because it sort of pigeonholes it, that you feel you can only have it with pudding. But in fact, you, know, you it's brilliant with a starter, a rich starter of, I don't know, pâté de foie or foie gras or smoked eel or something like that with a glass of sweet wine or instead of a pudding or with cheese. I remember we had a lunch, one of our spectator winemaker lunches in the boardroom and we served... Paul Roger, which, as you both know, is pretty much the house pour at The Spectator. I think there are more bottles of Paul in the fridge than there are in the office fridge than there are of milk. But anyway, we had lovely James Simpson, MW, who's the MD of Paul Roger, and he was there hosting. We had some lovely Paul Roger, and at the end, just some macaroons. I begged James to, if we could have the Paul Roger demi-sec, which is a sweet champagne. And I asked everybody around the table to put their hands up. Has anyone had sweet champagne before? And none of them had. And we had this sweet Paul Roger which I think has, oh, I'll probably get this wrong, something like 76 grams of sugar per litre in it, whereas standard Paul Roger is about eight grams of sugar per litre. And we had it with the macaroons, and I said, please put your hands up if you like this. And it was a forest of hands. Every single person in the room put their hands up. And I think sweet champagne is, oh, my gosh, it's such a treat. And that that is a good 11 a.m. Kickstarter. <laughs> when you know a normal dry champagne would be, Two are sitting on the tum, but you know, if you're feeling in a bit of a lull at 11 a.m., have a little glass of sweet champagne or even a Moscato, just a, a sort of Asti Spumante or something. Really light in alcohol. It's only about 5%, but it's fruity, it's fresh, it's sweet. And yeah, I love sweet wines. 
And tell us about winemaker lunches for, for anyone who is interested but has never attended one before. How do they work? Well, they're great fun. We have them in the boardroom of the Spectator and it's me and the proprietor or winemaker of a wine estate and 14 readers. We sell tickets online. People can go to the website and book tickets and they're really fun. We have a four-course lunch provided by Foreman and Field, who've been catering these lunches for several years now. Really nice food. And we have the winemaker, as I say, or the proprietor. And we always get through a bottle ahead. I asked the spectator to buy some spittoons um, some years ago when we started lunches. And I think it was a ridiculous purchase. I don't think they've ever been touched. So <laughs> we might just send the spittoons back. But we always get through 16 bottles at these lunches. They're very gregarious, engaging. Spectator readers get to meet other specky readers. Last week, we had Chateau Figiac. We had the winemaker and one of the owners of Chateau Figiac, which is a, you know, a stellar wine. It's just been promoted to Saint-Domingue Grand Cru Classe A, alongside Chateau Pavie. And we've before that, we had Chateau Level Parferre. We've had Vega Sicilia from Spain. We've had uh, Zint Humbres from Alsace, the Royal Tokai Company from Hungary. They're really fun. We don't always have big names. We, For example, we had Domaine Taillet from Menetou Salon in the Loire, and they just make a white and a, a rosé. But it's fascinating to actually talk to the people who make these wines and really understand how they're made, why they're made, what they go, what food they go with. And the lunches are hugely popular. I'm trying to think what else we've got. We've got a, not actually at the boardroom, but in the Caledonian Club coming up, we've got a a volumetric tasting with Chateau Anglude. Max Seashell from Anglude is coming, and we're going to drink the same vintage of Anglude, which is a lot of people's favourite, modestly-priced Bordeaux, and we're drinking it in half bottles, bottles, magnums, double magnums, and an imperial um, to see how it differs in different sizes. What else have we got? I'm trying to think. Uh, we've got a Paul Roger tasting coming up. Not a lunch, but a Paul Roger tasting. But uh, no, the, the winemaker lunches are, are really fun, and we've had many now Hamilton Russell I think Anthony Hamilton Russell from South Africa I think has done hosted six lunches for us and no they're great events and I'd I'd, uh, encourage spectator readers to come along and meet your fellow readers and meet a winemaker and I mean they're incredibly well priced as well and just to finish on Johnny what would be your desert island meal and drink you can have a full suite of drinks to go with your meal (laughs) golly okay well we'd, we'd start with I would have said champagne, but actually I'm going to say we start with an English wine, English sparkling wine, maybe Ambriel from West Sussex. Lovely Wendy Althwaite makes fantastic wine there near Poolborough or Herbert Hall from Kent. Gosh, actually, there's so many. I love English wine so much. So we definitely start with English sparkling wine. Then we have a smoked eel, smoked eel with diced beetroot and horseradish. And we'd have an Alsace, Gewurztraminer with that. I adore the wines of Alsace. In fact, Alsace is probably my favourite of all French wine regions. Love it. So smoked eel and a Gewurztraminer. And then a main course would probably be, depends if Liv's cooking it or not, but it would probably be, not her chicken pie, it would be cassoulet. Cassoulet is probably my favourite all-time dish. So a massive shirt-popping portion of cassoulet with, um, you should have a sort of longer dock red with that, but I'd probably have Hamilton Russell Pinot Noir with that, I think. And then some slices or chunks of mimolette cheese, which is my favourite cheese, a really rock-hard mimolette trevier with some Royal Tokai sweet wine, I think, or a Canadian sweet wine. I'd probably skip pudding because I would be so full after 
my three helpings of um, cassoulet. And if you could have one wine for the rest of your life, that's the only one you've got, what are you going for? What's your ultimate wine? Oh, crikey. I have no idea. Probably the next bottle I'm going to have. <laughs> but I don't know. There are so many lovely wines out there and there's always something that stops me in my tracks. Only the other day in, in London at the Academy Club, I had a, an Alsace Pinot Blanc from Domaine Wineback. And I thought, crikey Moses, this is so delicious. And the guy I was with, who, who'd never had it before either, he said, Johnny, what, how come we never knew about this lovely wine? And but I know and there'll be another wine tomorrow or the next day that will also stop me in my track. So I don't, don't think I could really answer that. As, as long as someone else is paying for it, um, I don't really mind what it is. <laughs> well, Johnny, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. And for any listeners who would like to try one of the Spectator Wine Club lunches, just search for Spectator Wine Club and the details will, will be there. 